Welcome to Tales from the Tabletop, a podcast dedicated to exploring the fascinating worlds and cultures of Dungeons and Dragons, and providing you with the tools to incorporate these ideas into your own campaigns at home. I'm your host Kyle, and this is my co-host Ryan. Join us as we delve into the rich tapestries of D&D lore, from the iconic races and classes to the diverse lands and cultures that make up these intricate worlds. So sit back, grab your dice, and join us for Tales from the Tabletop, where Where the the adventure adventure never ends. Eberron has a broad range of history. Some things to understand in current 5e Eberron is that the entire continent of Corvair has been plagued by a 100-year war. This gives you and your players the opportunity to explore a campaign within the timeline pre- post, or during the war. At the war's end, after the signing of the Treaty of Thronehold, which divided the land up into 12 different territories, each offering a unique way of introducing the world at your table. However, today, we're going to dive into the depths of the different races of Eberron, their culture, their unique traits, and give some examples of how these things may be used and incorporated into your own campaign as a player or an NPC. Eberron like many D&D campaign settings, has a vast amount of races. All standard races that you would find in the Player's Handbook can be found throughout Eberron, with a few exceptions, which are the traditional races of Elf and Tiefling, as Eberron offers its own variation on these races. As we said before, Eberron does offer a vast array of unique races, but we're going to get started with the two exceptions, that being the Elf and the Tiefling, as Eberron offers its own twist on these races. So, we're going to get things started off with the Elf. Now, personally, I've never played an Elf. It doesn't really appeal to me, the whole fantasy, lifestyle, and even down to what they look like. But, Ryan has spent quite a, a lot of time in an Elf's shoes, so I'm going to let him take off with this you one. Calling me short and making cookies or what? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you, you enjoy pointed ears more than me, that's for sure. Yeah, so the main thing about Eberronian elves is they're descended from Eladrin of the Facefire City and originated in a t- city called Zindric about a millennia before the war. Fleeing Zindric, they spent generations in isolation from the Feywild, fundamentally creating their own Eberronian race. So I would right. almost recommend using the use the DM guide's Eldrian variant for the elf. Yeah, that so now what really makes these elves uh different and something that kind of would interest me because it's one of the things that I have most against elves, I guess. This Eberronian elves don't have a connection to the Feywild. That's very unique. Yeah, they completely been separated from the Feywild and you'll notice like in Eberron while traditional D&D lore has sun elves and moon elves they still exist in Eberron but they're a rarity that it's just elf and they're the other most popular race of elves in Eberron or highest population race in Eberron I should say is the drow yeah and traditionally you would see elves in what what would you say Positions of power, royalty, yeah. nobles. Yeah, they're usually like a bunch of snooty type <laughs> people. Yeah, so that's that's what makes Eberronian elves more unique, is here in Eberron, elves are taking on different roles, such as mercenaries, uh, swords for hire, rogues, and there's even an entire 
territory dedicated to kind of an Arabian Nights feel with elves. Yes. Um, they also follow a religion called the Undying Court. Yeah. Where they worship their ancestors and believe that they reincarnate. Yeah, so really fun spin on your traditional elf that's typically connected to a different plane of existence where it gets its... He or she gets their sense of entitlement, I suppose, being above other mortal races. And here they're kind of brought down to the same playing field, worshipping a type of god that you would see humans and orcs dabbling with. Now, one thing that is very interesting about this, Keith Baker gave a unique feat to these elves. Yeah. And a weapon. It's like a devil-sided sword that only they can... Yeah, it's almost like a scimitar with two blades. Yeah, and only they're really proficient with it? Yeah, other races can gain proficiency through some work, or if you had maybe an interesting backstory, where if you're a different race somehow involved with these elves... But they're the only ones that can get the feet. Yeah, typically an elf from Valinar would be the only one you'd see being proficient with these weapons, as they're unique to them. Now, let's talk about dragon marks on these elves. Yeah. Because there's two primary dragon marked elven houses, and then a secret third one in the past of Eberron. <laughs> the secret third one, uh, a.k.a. 3.5, that got <laughs> errated hard in 5e. But we'll talk about that. That's that's later. Yes. So, we have House Therani and House Fjarlun. Fjarlun. Fjarlun? Yeah, a lot of these houses, you'll typically just make it up. The, yeah. The pronunciations, <laughs> like Seer, for example, yes. you could say it like ten ways. Yeah, and they're all acceptable at your tabletop, and just well, go with it. <laughs> what, did, what did Baker say? Sire? Sire, yeah. So, yeah, I guess we'll go with that. But, yeah, on this one, two primary elven houses, uh, Velinar and Fjarlun. So, with House Velarin and Thorani, their dragon mark is the mark of shadow. Yes, both houses have the same dragon mark, which causes conflict between them. But that mark is specifically for elf races. Its traits increase cunning, intuition, shape shadows, and spells of the mark. Their headquarters are the quarters, the domains, and regal port of the Lazarian principalities. When you're talking about the dragon mark versus the house, because though House Therani and Fjerilan share the same dragon mark, they're largely different in the things they do and their role in Eberron as a whole. So with House with House Fjerilan, the elves in this are typically based in Ander, Breland, and Thrain. House Fjerilan typically tries to keep separate reputations when it comes to the public eye and the private eye. So to the public, House Fjerilan is typically regarded as entertainers. Uh, composed mostly of elvish bards, actors, artists, and acrobats. Though there is a deep secret held within the house, as this is typically also referred to in darker circles as the House of Espionage, having quite a few assassins and spies in their midst. So, while House Fierlon is known as in public entertainers and in the shadows as spies, House Therani has a very different job to do in Eberron as a whole. The house Therani did split off from Fyrleon. That explains why they both have the same Mark of Shadow. Um, but they did split off into a separate organization and are now direct rivals 
competing in the entertainment and espionage places and spaces within Eberron. House Tharani is also known throughout Eberron as one of the youngest families, having only started just before the start of the last war. And to the public, House Tharani are known as artists and entertainers. However, unlike House Firlion, uh, Tharani is a lot more public about their assassinations. <laughs> almost to the point of... We did it. Yeah, almost to the point of gloating, uh, which has put the two houses extremely at odds. Now for the big forgotten mark. <laughs> the mark of death. This, too, is an Elven-specific mark. However, it's been purposely left ambiguous in all editions of Eberron to kind of allow DMs and players to add it into their story in their own way. The only things that have really been said about it is that it is for an Elven bloodline, and it's from the House of Vol, which, as we know in Eberron, there is an entire cult called the Blood of Vol. Yeah. So, would this work... Would this would this elven bloodline work a lot like the the bloodline features you'd find in like? Honestly, I feel like it's like the Targaryen house in Game of Thrones. They've been wiped out because they thought of them as a great evil. Yeah. And now it would you could always make a nice player hook or twist by incorporating this bloodline back in, or having a dragon mark appear on an elf in your party that's not normally dragon marked. And suddenly it's the mark of death, and nobody knows what it does, and they're just gaining unique powers. So now let's let's really take these concepts about Eberronian elves and get to our favorite part, a little character building. So say we have an elf of House Fearlon. Let's give her let's give her an exotic name, Arianya. Arianya? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So as a member of House Fearlon. She's been a performer across Eberron since she was a young elf. I can see that, yeah. And let's say she she was born into a family of musicians or bards, went to a bard college that explains that explains all the bardic abilities. Let's let's assume that. And let's say she has a real talent for for a certain instrument. What is it? The banjo. The ba- <laughs> she likes to sing a little ditty. A little ditty. Arianya on her banjo. Yep. I like it. Let's do it. So let's say we have this elf, Arianya, our elven bard from House Fjallon. So now we need we need to give her some motivation based on her house. So let's say she was recruited by one of the groups of shadow that, that Fjallon is beholden to. Let's say it's the House of Masters. Okay. That's, that's a good name. That's mysterious, right? Yeah. So. The House of Masters. With the. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we're building Arya Stark right you now. Know? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a good place to start, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's say in her time in Arianya's stay with the House of Shadows, she picked up some skills. So, when you're building this character, what kind of weapon does Arianya use to dispatch her foes quickly and quietly? Well, she plays a banjo when she's performing. Well, 
<laughs> that's with a party. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if she's gonna be playing the banjo when she's assassinating. She's not gonna be dogging nogs with the banjo. <laughs> well, yeah, the banjo would be like a plus two, but. <laughs> <laughs> so. She needs something sleeker, something for Arianya's assassination. She strangles them with mage hand. With mage hand. No, nice. no martial weapon skills. Nothing. Just the mage hand. Why not? Yeah, perfect. Just the mage hand. Just... <laughs> is that how that works? <laughs> no, that's not how that works. It is now. The rule yeah. cool. Yeah, I mean... Look it up. <laughs> number one rule in the DM's guide. So, let's say Arianya serves the House of Shadows. Now, as of all, as of, with all dark, brooding bards, something has to happen to her to get her in our party, to get her in our story. Yes. So, let's say one night she's performing at a, a queen's court, and an assassination's attempted on her. Oh, from her same house? From her same house. Oh. So, or it could be a Therani. That could bring in the house's infighting into it our could character. could be a Therani pretending to be from her house. It could. cause animosity. Oh, I like that. So, now we have a good character. Nice background, and a reason that she would want to find some friends. We also have a good twist there for the DM to use for later in the game. Exactly. The character thinks that it's her own house trying to assassinate her. And so it may sound mundane, but saying this character had an assassination attempt sounds, it sounds pretty cookie cutter. <laughs> but it gives your DM a lot of leverage on how to incorporate both of these elven houses into the story. She'll want to know who it was, why they were trying to kill her, if they're part of Therani or Firalon, or something different pretending completely. And the thing is, this character can be used as both an NPC or a player character. Yeah, this could be a good hook to get your players into the real underbellies in Breland and Thrain. Mm -hmm. It could be a, a good way to introduce your characters to... A network of spies if you're trying to do an espionage campaign or a political intrigue campaign, which Eberron lends itself to nicely. She can even be added in as a nice little filler for the party who just happens to need a little extra bard support for part of the campaign. Right. So I think the most important part of making any character, and Eberron especially, is to give your DM a lot of ammunition to bring in as many political figures and houses, important people within these houses as possible. Because at the end of the day, Eberron is a political setting. Very much so. Let's say we take our, our bard, Arianya, and she remains humble and grounded, never forgetting her roots after this assassination attempt. Or let's say she completely loses it and goes and tries to find the biggest group of miscreants she can to hunt this person down. You can take it many different ways. And that's a good it's it's a base character, kind of generic backstory. But the thing about Eberron is you can take those generic backstories and mix them in to just the noir that Eberron lends itself to. And it adds a lot of life to even the most mundane characters. Who could be someone that Arianya may recruit for her party? Well what race better than one of my favorites? You know this. RDM knows this, the tiefling. So now in Eberron, 
the tiefling doesn't suffer from one of its biggest drawbacks, in my opinion, is normally in your streamlined D&D, 5e, if you're playing Sword Coast, for example, or something like that, typically your tieflings would have to be beholden to a, an infernal power. And I think that makes them suffer from a very, uh, very unique problem, uh, whereas everyone is, oh, the dark brooding tiefling. Imagine that. <laughs> it's a it's a problem every They're time. Yeah, if I say I'm playing a tiefling, everyone rolls their eyes and says, "Oh, here we go. He's gonna kill everyone and just be an asshole." <laughs> now, <laughs> sometimes, but I don't think that should be the go-to when you think of a tiefling. And I think Eberron does a very good job of introducing other sources of what makes them inhuman. Tieflings in Eberron originated from a nation of, called Orakal that made pacts with devils. They were primarily humans and other supernatural beings causing their bloodlines to be corrupted. Yeah, that's another cool thing about Eberron. Typically in streamlined D&D, especially 5th edition, you'd think of a tiefling bloodline originating from a human. That's not really the case in Eberron. You can find a tiefling that comes from a dwarven bloodline or elven or centaur exactly and yeah that's what adds this really cool twist to the race they are extremely rare however as in like no two tieflings will more than likely see each other traveling now if they all live in the venomous domain yeah the venomous domain and drome that's one of the very few exceptions Typically, a tiefling... It's like a tiefling stronghold, so to speak. Right. Typically, you wouldn't meet another tiefling if you were playing as one. It'd be pretty rare. And if your DM throws another tiefling at you, it's most likely important. Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of them, as far as religion goes, either stick to standard devil worship or worshiping of whatever supernatural being their family has made pacts with. Exactly. And that's kind of what I like where they're going with it here. So typically, like I said earlier, you think of a tiefling as having an infernal or a demonic pact. Now the cool thing here is depending on where your bloodline originated from, if you have any uh, dragon marks associated with your bloodline, you can be associated with other forms of dogma other than just your typical big bad evil guy. So you have things like the Sovereign Host or the Church of the Silver Flame that can host these tiefling bloodlines. And that's for a completely different reason than if they would have just your typical yeah, demonic. There are some notes of like tieflings following Druidic traditions in Eberron which I would imagine would be in the demon ways when they're living on their own. Yeah, a lot of the tieflings in Eberron are considered to be f feral, so they'd be in places like Drome, or the demon wastes, or typically to the far east, where civilization, in the Treaty of Thronehold especially, doesn't hold as much weight. The Shadow Marches. The Shadow Marches, where the, where the treaty doesn't hold any weight, or very little. Yeah. Now... You mentioned dragon marks on there. Eberron has no records of dra dragon marks developing on a tiefling, which is nice to because you can throw that in there as like a 
fun alternate for your players. Yeah, the the dragon marks are very well laid out in the book, but from our couple of games in Eberron, I think it's a lot of fun to kind of break the rules of some of those dragon marks. Well, and they specifically use the words in the book of no records of. Right. Meaning that it's possible, it's just nobody has seen it because tieflings are so rare. Yeah. Yeah, so if your party finds themselves within Drome, especially the Venomous Domain, that could be a very nice storyline to throw there. See if your tiefling player picks up on the importance of seeing another tiefling and you can bring in these marks and maybe your player is marked himself, herself, and they don't even know. So, as far as the traits of the tieflings go, it's really similar to your typical 5e tiefling. Um, If you're a if your bloodline is from the Silver Flame, the Blood of Vol, the Sovereign Host, it typically doesn't make much of a difference on paper. That's kind of up to you to decide. And I think the cool part of that is you can kind of alter your appearance. If you're from the Church of the Silver Flame as a tiefling, and your bloodline has much served to stomp out the darkness in Eberron, you could have very light, even glimmering skin. You could have golden eyes instead of the typical dark black yellow. Yeah, almost like that weird celestial looking teeth. Yeah, y- yeah. Yeah, you could have a a very like valiant look to you and your your horns could come up to the shape of a crown instead of your typical. It would lend itself very well to someone that's trying to serve the Church of the Silver Flame, or the Blood of Vol as a sort of cultist or sovereign host, as your typical do-gooder. That's how I would picture that character. Or a Kyber follower joining a Kyber cult. Exactly. Yeah, you could take them in a lot more directions, I think, than what your typical tiefling allows you to do, which is usually in support of, I would say, evil parties or leaning toward... I think it's hard to incorporate a typical tiefling unless you wanted to do a backstory of a tiefling raised by another race, which Eberron almost lends itself to. Yeah, it could be a tiefling raised by minotaurs. Yeah, if you're in Drome, there's all sorts of possibilities with how you grew up as a tiefling. If you wanted to do a druid tiefling, you could have them raised in the Elden Reach by one of the shifters or the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, your tiefling could have feral characteristics, much like a shifter. I know you, the the last Eberron campaign I DM'd, you did have a tiefling from... I did. From the Venomous Domain, so let's go ahead and use that. Okay. I The character I built was Zalthar Dimfar. Yeah. Which is a silly name for a tiefling, but I admit. But it's the name I came up with. And Zalthar had a warlock pact, pact of blades, and was his patron was Kyber, which is an unusual patron by all standards in Eberron. Kyber as in one of the world dragons. Yes. There's three world dragons in Eberron, but Kyber is like their version of Hades or... Yeah, the Hell. underworld dragon. Yeah. And, yes. So, through this interaction with Kyber, Zalthar's appearance seemed more dragon-scaled and ashen gray. Yeah, so there's a lot of good variants you can put on the way you look. Yeah. 
based on what Everon lets you do with your bloodlines. Yeah. Your pact is very important in Everon as a tiefling, because that can decide how you look. You can adjust your character's... can almost adjust your character's appearance based upon your pact. Right. Its powers can also look and be adjusted to how your pact affects him or her appropriately. Yeah, and not to be confused, as the character we're talking about right now is a warlock, we mean pact as in why your family has tiefling traits. Exactly. Because tieflings are generated from a family pact, whether your character is a warlock or a... Yeah, the tiefling race is new enough to Eberron where it has not naturally occurred. So when I made Zalthar, I was thinking, what type of tiefling and background would I come up with? So I made Zalthar about six foot tall with a four and a half foot long prehensile tail. You know, covered in scales that are like the color of ash. So he could easily be confused with a dragonborn. Yeah. But more human traits. When he was younger, you know, because... All tieflings have tragic edgelord backlines. <laughs> Usually. You know. Mine did. <laughs> so, Zalthar had a family and was taught his lineage and worshipped Kyber all as a child. But the Silver Flame came in and raided his house. Now, some things about the Silver Flame, they don't really care for tieflings. No, they do not. And Which is weird, because a tiefling could have a lineage... Related this. to the Church of the Silver Flame and everyone. They're more like angels, okay? A little bit, they yeah. They don't have tragic backlines. It's an so. Asimir without using that word. Yes, I, exactly. I guess, yeah. Exactly. So they like raided Zalthar's house and ended up killing his parents mm. and taking his younger brother and sister. Typical. Typical tragic backline. And Zalthar is obsessed with finding his siblings. Typical of the Church of Silver Flame. Same. Yes. Such nonsense. The Tieflings being one of the races that don't associate with Dragon Marks normally. There's another in Aberon, and that's the Changeling. So, Changelings can be really interesting. We had a character in one of our last games in Aberon that was from the Lazar Principalities and played a very interesting Changeling, as they have the ability to become anyone. But the changelings are naturally distrusting of the other people of Corvair. And that's mostly because they weren't included in the treaty at Thronehold, despite being deployed quite often as spies and assassins during the war for higher-end targets, typically. Yeah, they were basically used. Yeah, they were used and thrown out of the treaty at the end of the war kind of casting them out throughout all facets of society. And obviously, from the name, it's hard to locate a changeling unless they want you to. Yeah. So, changelings typically in Eberron categorize themselves three different ways. As passers, becomers, and seekers. So, as a passer, uh, changelings typically try to hide their true nature in society and suppress their shape-shifting abilities, and they try to become someone else almost full-time. Becomers try to live multiple lives and fully embrace their ability to shape-shift. They could be someone different every day, even sometimes going to the extent of posing as a full organization, as one being. 
while the Seekers typically suppress their abilities even further than Passers and choose to only live within the Changeling culture. They typically don't ever become someone else at all, let alone full-time or multiple people. Primarily, Changelings can be found on the continent of Sarlona and have slowly trickled their way into Corvair for various reasons, but most Changeling lineages that exist in Corvair are a direct result of the war. Like we said earlier, uh, the Changelings are one of two races that don't necessarily identify with a dragon mark. But again, we reiterate, break these rules if it sounds good. Yeah. If you want to put a changeling with a dragon mark, you can say that it was a changeling that mated with an elf, or... Maybe maybe your changeling is a... Your changeling's entire family are passers, and so much to the extent where they forget they're a changeling. Yeah. There's a lot of cool ways to work those dragon marks into tiefling and changeling, and definitely don't be discouraged just because the book says it's not a thing. It definitely can be if it sounds good for you. Yes. Don't lock yourself down to things just because it's on writing. Have fun with it. Right. So with our three different types of changelings and knowing how rare they are, how would we put one into a story. I think a good place for a changeling to call home is the Lazar principalities. Oh yes, and pirates everything. Right, it definitely lends itself to a life of hiding or becoming different people. You can blend into multiple crews and loose societies within the Lazar principalities way easier than if you were trying to pass in Sharn or something larger like that, where you'd be known, where you can move around all the time in the principalities. So, let's make our changeling from there. I think that's a good place to start. Let's say Kalis. I like that name. Kalis is a good name. Kalis, yeah. yeah. So, let's make him not something typical of a changeling. We don't want a rogue or an assassin. Let's, that's too stereotypical. That's too stereotypical. Let's do a wizard. A wizard changeling? Yeah, because okay. wizards can alter forms of themselves or others too, yeah, just in a different way. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that's a cool way to move this in. So let's say Kalis is an academic. Came to Corvair to attend Arcanics. Yes. For example. Let's say he found himself drawn to academia because it gave him a sense of belonging. It gave him stability, something changelings don't have in Corvair typically. So, let's say as he grew older, he started to relate to the people in Arcanics differently. Let's say he does something to get thrown out. So, he changes himself into a different student and re-enrolls. Yes. Or changes himself into the dean and gets rid of his expulsion paperwork. Exactly. Let's say in his past he's done something very impressive like that with his ability to be a changeling. It kind of sets him apart from the three, the passers, the seekers. Let's say this sets him apart from that. He doesn't choose one of those. But so let's say eventually he gets thrown out of Arcanics permanently. They kind of got his number. They know he's impersonating. And let's say he ends up in the principalities yeah. aboard a ship. Of course they think it's all polymorph spells. Right. They don't know he's a changeling. They know he's a wizard. But really, nobody knows Kalis 
is a changeling, and that's the way he likes it. So let's keep it like that. When we reach our party, they won't know either. Yeah. Unless they have a way to find out, which could come up. And that's also an interesting like thing you can do to your players. Yeah. If they have secrets, drop things in the game to like expose those secrets and force that role play in between the parties. Yeah, so Eberron, like we stated earlier, is a great place to give your DM lots of fodder to force you into those role-playing situations or to guide you into finding something important within the politics of, of Corvair. So let's say that Calix found his way to Regalport and he's now a respected member of arcane society in the Lazar Principalities. As much as that really means. a respected member of Arcade's Lazar Principality? Let's assume there is. (laughs) He found it. He created it. Let's say he, yeah, let's say he's recruiting the other people. I'm the dread pirate, and this is my respected first mate, the wizard, (laughs) Calix. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah, Calix is the man. He, He found his way. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a good place. So, let's say Calix did find himself as the respected first mate of a dread pirate. Okay. And the pirate has no idea that Calix is a changeling, attended Arcanix, anything. So he's essentially posing as whatever he wants. And that's up to you. That's the fodder that you can give your DM if you choose that Calix tells the captain his the truth. Let's say they become really good friends. Let's say he distrusts him and he's only aboard the ship for a livelihood. Let's say he's trying to use this captain to find what he wants. That's a lot of good fodder to give your DM so that the DM can guide the party toward the principalities and ultimately get Calix to what he's looking for. It also makes for a great NPC. You could use Calix as an intermediary for a boat if you're players needed a way to get across the oceans to a different part of the continent or through the Lazar principalities for some reason. Yeah, let's say one of your players also attended Arcanix and they remember all the scandals Calix caused when he posed as the dean or one of the headmasters. Yes, and then they could run into him at a pub while they're looking for somebody to get them safely across the ocean. The character would recognize Calix maybe go up and try talking to them if if not calix can always approach them that is sometimes what dms have to do yeah 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 he'd be a good npc it'd be a good good way to connect your players to almost any of the central hubs of civilization that calix has been a part of maybe multiples if you want him to be a long-term npc or if you just want him to be the provider of a hook there's a lot of good you can do in that as a dm just from that small amount of backstory and really just because he's a changeling the possibilities are endless that's why they're so rare it's so hard to play as player characters they should be they're powerful you can be anyone yeah and they're described as rare but because they can be anyone who knows yeah. how rare they who, actually are who knows yeah <laughs> we could have a body snatcher situation going on <laughs> yeah i mean full-on do- doppelganger stuff yeah, which brings me to a good idea I have once had for Changelings in Everon, where they are becoming someone and offing who they're becoming slowly. Oh. 
And this could take place in the principalities. They'd be a lot easier there. But it could also be a good way to get into the espionage and the politics. Say they're doing this in Sharn and they're starting at the top. So I also, I've recently heard of a trick that a DM pulled on his players. One guy could not make it to the campaign. He said, okay, I'll play it. So he started playing the character as a, but slightly different, making slightly different decisions. And the whole party thought it was because the the DM was playing the player character. Well, when the player got back for the next game, the DM continued playing his character. And then they realized that it was a doppelganger. Oh. And that they had to fight. Oh, yeah, that's a good place. Get their player back. So that would be a good place to put in an enemy changeling. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good things you can do. Great race. I love the addition. It's always been a thing in the background of D&D, but here we actually have a reason to be one. And a lot of fun things you can do. The changeling isn't the only hyper rare uh, race you can find in everyone. And... It's not the only one that's a far cry from your typical race. And now, Ryan, I know you love this one. I hear about... my heart. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan has tried to put this race into every campaign setting we have played and has been justly shot down in each attempt. But I'm pulling for him. I would love to see... I would love to see a Kalistar in Theros. But... (laughs) I had a good background in mind for it, but okay, fine, justly shut down. Kalistars don't exist in the <laughs> So that brings us to the next race, the Kalistar. And this being kind of Ryan's pet race of Eberron, I would say much like how the Tiefling is mine. Yes. Well, to be fair, Kalistars are also Keith Baker's admitted favorite. Uh, that's and fair. By far, they are my favorite, too. But yeah, they're certainly the most unique. And yeah. they really lend themselves to a lot of fun class options. But first, let's get into what they are. What is a Kalistar? So, originally, Kalistars came from a being called a quarry, which exists in Dalcor, which is the Plane of Dreams. Now, normally, a mortal race can only enter there when they fall asleep. But there's a war from the Dreaming Dark versus the quarry. And they're, like, hunting them down. So 67 monks offered up their bodies. and This kind of sounds like an elf cosplaying as Freddy Krueger. It's basically it. <laughs> and the quarry decided to possess these monk bodies, creating the original 67 Kalashars, which, if you think of it as Avatar the Last Airbender or <laughs> Legend of Korra, the spirits give them supernatural powers. So a Kalistar isn't the living being, it's the soul? It's the soul. So the and essentially the living beings reincarnate through bloodlines now. So are there only sixty seven Kalistar and they take on no. new bodies? No, so they still reproduce, but they relive the memories of all the quarries that are inside them. So they don't dream, which one of their abilities makes them immune to the spell dream or any spell that requires them to dream. But they can still be made to go to sleep magically. So sleep still works on them, but if it requires them to dream, they're not affected by it. That seems really powerful, but I don't really really think I've ever had a, a DM or done this myself where... They seem really based on mental and psychic things. It never really comes up. So 
they're primarily like anti elephants. You know, the octopus brain eaters. Now, they have resistance to psychic damage, and they get advantage on all wisdom saves, which is pretty great. But just as a roleplay aspect, I really love their mind link ability. If they can see you and you're within 10 feet per level, <laughs> they can talk to you telepathically. Whether you want them to or not. And I remember you, much to the chagrin of my DM, doing that all the time. He was like, oh, did you say that out loud or did, <laughs> or did you think that? <laughs> yeah, it, it is very complicated on how that works, but you can only talk to one person at a time. Yeah, I was the DM in this game, and I always had to stop and say, Ryan, did you say that out loud or no? No, it's never out loud. It's never. We just assumed it was never out loud. Yes. <laughs> but they are limited to the languages they know. They get common and quarry, which is the language of the being inside them. Which a nice aspect about Kalistars is you can create like a dual mind situation. The quarry, they relive their memories of it. The quarry could advise them. Just like how Avatar Roku advised Aang and Avatar The Last Airbender. The quarry can say, through my many centuries of life, this is what I experienced. I can help you with this. It gives a good way for the DM to guide the story if players are confused or get your players back on track. Now, I think something interesting you can do with the Kalashar and Eberron, especially with the fact that they're a spirit reliving multiple lives, you can bring in the Dragon Marks, <clears throat> in a really interesting way. I think you can have a character who's the reincarnation of someone that had a dragon mark, and somehow it manifests in this new life. Yes, and with dragon marks on Kalistars, it says under the race they do not manifest naturally. Meaning, yeah. some supernatural way they can show up. So they're like perfect candidates for the aberrant dragon mark. Yeah, perfect candidates for the aberrant dragon mark. We'll get more into the specifics of that later that itself is a whole conversation yes now the character that he's been alluding to that gave him so much problems <laughs> was a character i created vishra Baikov. vishra was a mute originally so i made it to where she only talks telepathically and was very stubborn about right having everything written down and Eventually, a god gave her her voice back. <laughs> yeah, well, you can say that was my fault because I was the DM, but regret was had because then I had to ask if you were speaking out loud or not. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but a unique feature of Kalistars in these ways is when they get very emotional, they glow. Their eyes, their hair glows with almost phosphoretic light and intensity of emotion so you have a good descriptor of mood setting in role play or in combat if you're facing your arch enemy or you're in a stressful situation maybe you start glowing and then people are like why are you glowing yeah so you could bring you could bring this character back into the game we're talking about here you could bring her in let's go back to aranya let's say the vishra hired who went after her let's yeah. say she was the one that went after her 
let's say that they had a problem with each other based on Vishra's previous life, and that's her motivation in our game. Yeah. But in the game that Vishra did already exist in, it was kind of a, a mix of the two. She was, you know, involved in lots of espionage and brought us into the noir pieces of Sharn. But she also had combat prowess from her husband in that game, who was a player character and another game that took place in Everon. So we connected this race across two campaigns with different groups of people using the dreaming the dreaming dark. Yeah. Her husband who Aldrin was the name of that character. Aldrin contacted Vishra using the dreaming dark and vice versa across two campaigns. So we ended up with this really unique scenario where these two characters were intertwined across you could say two different realities because two different games, two different versions of Eberron and the dreaming dark using the dreaming dark in this way is very unique because with it being an organization that normally hunts Kalistars, having Vishra work for it right is a twist on a Kalistar that really you don't see yeah and again with Aldrin her husband in a different campaign a lot of his motivations came from a lot of the visions she had via the dreaming dark now, Aldrin was a half-elf, so he didn't have a direct connection to the Dreaming Dark like Vishra did as a Kalistar. But she had been reincarnated enough times to connect him to the Dreaming Dark, which was a good hook for him and the DM in that game. Exactly. So there's a lot of cool things you can do, and I think it's a really unique way we managed to take it almost accidentally yeah. because these two characters were created in unrelated games. But somehow their paths crossed and that's something you can do with a Kalashar's connection to the dreaming dark and it's how you can use this race in any campaign setting in my opinion yes you know barring dm restrictions because they can access any plane of existence through the dreaming dark yes and with the new like Planeswalker variants through the Magic the Gathering world, right. it's perfect for Kalistars to jump around. <laughs> so, Brandon, if you're listening, like, that works. <laughs> <laughs> no digs or anything, <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> now, with all the technology we can find in Eberron, and the book stating that you can barely tell the difference between technology and magic, that really gets us into the next highly unique race in Eberron that has been attempted to be ported to worlds unfathomed and ultimately way too good yeah. <laughs> if they don't exist in Eberron because that's where their weaknesses matter. Yeah. Only in Eberron. Yep. <laughs> well, of course, we're talking, if you're familiar with Eberron at all, you know a Warforged. Yeah, and you may know Warforged even if you're not familiar with Eberron. You're tip you're you're playing Iron Man. <laughs> yes, definitely. You're um, the Iron Giant. Yeah. In relation to Eberron though, uh the Warforged are a relatively new race. Uh stating they were created largely through House to Caneth, uh only thirty five years ago, toward the end of the war. Yeah, I think the oldest you can be is like 33 years old. 
Warforged are extremely adaptable, and in Eberron, which is where I think they really shine, they can learn new traits, uh, physical or mental. They can learn skills quickly, and that's through the the dragon shards in Eberron. They can essentially be inserted into the Warforged and reprogrammed. And reprogrammed. They also are described as being able to be taught like a child. Yeah, so you can literally change who you are, physically and mentally, if if someone in your party has the ability to use these dragon shards. They can essentially install an update. There's even the Transformer Druid. Yeah. Yeah, It's not the actual name. No. (laughs) The Mark of the Machine. That's, uh, That's not in the official book. That's the thing, and it's really cool. You can basically be... A transformer. Essentially, that's what you're playing. You're, it's in one of his side books. It's we'll it's in the one. Later. Yeah, we'll cover that later. It's in the one. It's in the supplemental book that was only released online. Okay. Um, but yeah, typically, toward the end of the war, House Caneth played a significant role in the creation and distribution of the Warforged. Uh, they were losing ground in Seer, in three different directions: Breland, Ondare, Karnath. All breaking through into Seer, they had to do something. They're, so they relied on their technological genius, House to Caneth, being the mark of creation. Yeah. A mark of making, I believe, is what it is. Yes, mark of making. Um, they deployed essentially drones to guard their borders from enemy invaders. And that's at the beginning at their zenith, and when they pushed Thrain, Ander, Breland out, Karnath, when they pushed all these people out of Seer, people recognized the power of that creation. And then the Warforged, the the Syrians essentially became arms dealers yeah. to they, other fighting nations. They became like America in World War II and sold to every side. Yeah, yeah, they, they took these Warforged creations and sold them to every superpower in the war. And eventually brought an abrupt end to the war when they reached a critical mass of Warforged on all sides. And the treaty was eventually reached almost as a direct result of the, mor- of the Warforged yeah. being created and the Morning and Seer, yeah. which we'll talk more about that later too. Um, but that essentially, the Syrians' greatest creation brought their end. Yes. So... The Warforged being deployed on all fronts meant a lot for the greater world of Eberron. And after the war ended, it meant even more for the Warforged that were still in existence after the fall of Seer, after the morning. Um, a lot of them... So, a Warforged, I think, is it's important to remember when they were created, they were created for a specific purpose. They were created for manual labor or to fight, or to fly vehicles, or to operate the lightning rails, something like that. And when the war was over, and these Warforged were spread out all over Corvair, and their purpose in life abruptly ended. A lot of them were decommissioned. Uh, A lot of them, they couldn't be taken back to Seer, as Seer didn't exist anymore. So they were largely disregarded. Some of them kept... The purpose up after the treaty, but largely they were disregarded completely in the treaty. 
uh, they weren't counted as alive. They didn't yeah. get a vote. Yeah, and there's still plenty of like fear mong- mongers in the Eberronian communities that are afraid of the Warforges' existence, and they want them melted down and decommissioned. So it gives you a good opportunity playing a Warforge to... Yeah, and there's even an entire organization in Breland dedicated to gathering as many Warforges as they can and banishing or destroying them. As a player, you can create a group that wants to stop that maybe one of these organizations has captured a group of warforged and your players are part of house caneth or know another person who is heavily involved with house caneth and house caneth obviously being sympathetic to their own creation um they know a lot of the same prejudice as sirens that the warforged know just for existing after the war so that's a really good motivation. Mm-hmm. You could want to stop this organization. And on the flip side, you could actually have a party that's in favor of that. Yes. And the Warforged in your party maybe is doing this against their will. Maybe they don't have will. You could do a 10-man situation yeah. where your character largely just listens to the party as a whole. Or maybe you have a direct connection to a member of the party who controls you, quote, end quote. They don't. Warforge will sometimes swear loyalty because of their raising of combat. They just don't know how to function without a commander. So when you think about the elves in Eberron largely identifying with Velinar or uh, our changelings with Sarlona or the tieflings largely having the venomous domain, parts of Drome, the Warforge don't really claim a home. They were created for a specific purpose, and now they're kind of just outcasts by nature. So that's another specific thing in your backstory. There is a flip side, though, to the all these different lands. Breland does have an art district that was created by Warforge for Warforge that have become bards, or... Right. Yeah, there's a really (laughs) there's a really cool piece of shard that we used before. And the name of it escapes me. But it's basically like Vegas with Warforged. There's a lot of carnival games. You can see Warforged being trapeze artists or programmed to perform <laughs> music or plays. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of uh, a mana punk Vegas, I guess is the best way I would describe it. So with the Warforged, we stated earlier, they're pretty powerful. Yes. Why is that? Well, their base stats, you know, granted with Tasha's, you can move them wherever you want, but just starting out, let's add two to con and one to any score. (laughs) They're also resistant to poison damage and have advantage on saving throws against poison. You don't need to eat, sleep, drink, or breathe, and you're immune to disease. So, hello, monk level 20. (laughs) Right. A lot of these base racial features would require any other race to take a feat, at the very least. You're also immune to magic sleep, which you're basically the same as an elf in that aspect. Now, you do still have to rest, but you rest in a motionless state, 
but you can still hear and see everything. You just can't move. Yeah, you're essentially, your party can place you in sentry mode. And you only have to do it for six hours. A long rest for you is six hours as opposed to every other living race of eight. You know, you get integrated protection, which allows you to have a plus one to your AC. And any armor you're proficient with, you just, like, absorb it into your body. (laughs) One to AC as a base from your racial. From your racial. That's a feat. Yes, that's a feat right there. (laughs) It takes an hour to remove or put on the armor. But as long as you're alive, no one can take it off of you unwillingly. Now, I think one of the more interesting things you can get into with a Warforged is the the languages. So, in the book, it says you get common and one other language. But let's suppose you have an artificer in your group, and they want to program as many languages as they want into their Warforged compatriot. Yeah, I mean, why not? You can do... Yeah, you can do things like that. You're If you're playing a Warforged, you could be... You could basically have tongues permanently cast on you if your artificer does the appropriate actions with the dragon shards. Yeah, and your DM has the right amount of time figured out and allows it. Yeah, that's something really interesting you can do, knowing that you can upgrade a Warforge and why couldn't you teach it a language really quickly? Now, one big thing on the Warforge, and even with the rule of cool we mentioned earlier... I still don't think Warforge can manifest dragon marks. Yeah. So as much as we preach to be pretty liberal with your dragon marks, I don't think a Warforge is a good fit. Now, there could be some outlier. So maybe if an artificer was to carve a mark into there, you could give them some type of special ability, just like the artificer making their artifacts. Right. Or if uh, if a Warforged was branded by the house it served during the war, that yeah. could be a, a loose way. But I still wouldn't make it nearly as powerful as the dragon mark itself. Yeah. I, I would say approving a Warforged character as a DM is a delicate juggling act. Because if you're not careful, you will find yourself playing against your Warforged PC more than just facilitating them. Because they can become quite powerful and even warp the way you have to bring encounters into the fold just because of what they can do naturally. And inevitably, it's all about having fun on all ends. Exactly. Yeah. So you don't want your Warforged player to feel untouchable either, which I think is already something that might happen based on just natural natural stats. stats. Yeah. You you can have a Warforged fighter with upwards of 23 AC very early on and that would really warp the way you would have to attack this player. Yes, and could make it harder and more strenuous on your other party at right. the same level. So Warforged made of metal, how do you heal them? Do you do you cast cure wounds on a Warforged? So, they're described as being made of a hybrid of metal and some type of wood, like the ships. Right, so the wood typically used to manufacture a Warforged is a very prized, enchanted wood from Seer. Uh, It's known as Ebonwood, and now Seer being destroyed, a Warforged could be a valuable source of Ebonwood. 
Yeah, which could be another underlining reason why these societies want to destroy the right. And, and if you picture, if you picture Evanwood, the way it's described in the book is essentially as something that can take an unnatural amount of punishment. Explaining why you get the plus one to AC, why you're such an imposing figure. It's the very things your character is made of can be valuable. And that's a lot of things you could bring in to your story. Like, the reason people are looking for you is not because what you've done or who you are. It could be as simple as the things you're made of is something they want. Now, in our previous campaigns, you've made some pretty interesting Warforge NPCs. One of the most memorable ones was Cole. Cool, yeah. We had to help out to some degree. Yep. Yeah, so Cole, uh, I never really gave Cole a uh, class. If I did, looking back, I would probably say that Cole was uh, on the lines of probably a fighter. Okay. Um, but I think one of the more one of the more unique things about Cole was that she was able to expel almost like a dragon breath because her original function uh, was to work in the the lower parts of Sharn. Uh, like Cogworks? Yeah, the Cogworks. Yeah, shoveling coal. That's typically a Warforged name is based on what they do. So coal, naturally. So coal had been a victim of what we're talking about now. Um, she's valuable because of what she's made of. And as a result, she's still mines the cog works and has been scrapped over and over for parts so she's missing an arm part of her lower jaw which kind of lended in my mind to uh the fire breathing and she's also missing a piece of her back leg so she kind of she doesn't really walk she kind of gyrates on one leg and clinks down on a shorter leg so the way she moves is unique because with a machine they can do all sorts of yeah. Interesting things like that. And our first mission was to unfortunately hunt down poor Cole and bring her in or wipe her out or convince her to leave. Yeah. Depending on how our party took it. Yeah. Yeah. So with a Warforged, you, you don't really get the option, I don't, I don't think, to have a very elaborate backstory. You, you were created to do some sort of manual labor. The backstory of a Warforged comes in the present. And that really gives your DM a lot of fodder. It's a good conversation you can have with a Warforged player character. Now, typically, your Warforged character would also have a close relationship with one of the other player characters to explain where you came from. You lack autonomy at first. Yes. Now, you also got dove into Cole as having a relationship with another Warforged called Razor, which was a unique way of taking these and anatomical beings and right. making them Yeah, if you if you think of a, a machine manufactured to perform manual labor you don't really think of them having human connections and feelings so I think a good way to treat that on a Warforged is with fixation uh, or what they spend the most time around. And in her case was Razor, as 
he also worked the Cogworks and toward the end of the war and post-war when that game took place, they were the only two left in the Cogworks. The others had been removed or scrapped and Cole was on her way to being scrapped and Razor was next. So that was a good hook to get the party interested in these two seemingly mundane beings. So now with talking about all these races that you can find throughout the 12 territories of Corvair, uh, let's get into one that's only really found on the edges of society. Oh, yeah? The shifters? Yeah. So, of course, we're talking about the shifter. Now, the shifter basically takes an old school idea in fantasy, the lycanthrope, yeah. and makes it into its own race. You have the physical capabilities of basically... What the different lycanthropy possibilities? Yeah, there's a lot of different possibilities in this. You can do like werebear, werewolf, were rat, and your tribe, if you will, of shifters all share these characteristics and manifest them in different ways. Like one could have a rat's tail, or one could have the fangs and the elongated face. And typically, the more powerful the shifter, the more closely they resemble their source of lycanthropy. But in Eberron, in the past, the shifters were often mistaked for actual cases of lycanthropy in, in a human hybrid form. Um, but it wasn't until the population grew to a, a noticeable number before the last war uh, that they were recognized as a, as a civilization and not just a, a group of outcasts or random hovels of lycanthropy-afflicted humanoids. They became their own recognized race but even in the modern world in Eberron they still consider themselves as lycanthropes and a lot of outside forces consider them positively or negatively as a case of lycanthropy and often hunt them or persecute them instead of like in the Eldine Reaches where they've mostly spread out to or Drome where they're respected for these characteristics a lot of the people in the Twelve Territories, and especially the Five Kingdoms, yeah. tend to persecute the Shifter. Especially the Silver Flame, as mentioned earlier, with our Tiefling friends. Yeah, with, with the Church of the Silver Flame, uh, there was one well-known account uh, pre-war. I think it was 862 YK, uh, which would put it... A few, only a few years before the beginning of the war, because the treaty was 972YK. Yeah. So, yeah, about 10 years before the last war. So this Inquisition was the Church of the Silver Flame in Thrain, violating a lot of treaties of passing through places like Ondere and Breland to get to Drome to carry this out. So this was a good, this, this Inquisition of the Shifters, you could say it was the shot heard around the world if you compare that to real life. This was the first instance of one of the big players in the Five Kingdoms of Corvair violating previous treaties and doing their own thing in spite of other superpowers. Now, big things on shifters, I would say, like religion-wise, they're primarily druids, but... Some will worship the Sovereign Host or even the Traveler from the Dark Six. Yeah, so being primarily spread throughout Drome and the Eldine Reaches, a lot of your traditional 
religions or ways of thinking like the blood of wool or the church of the silver flame, what have you in mainland Corvair, would it really reach them in these more isolated and savage places? They're going to be more druidic or shamanistic typically. Now that doesn't stop you from having a shifter who is somehow an artificer. That could be very interesting. Well, there are some cases of shifters just trying to assimilate into different cultures. Depending on the severity of your shifter's appearance, like we stated earlier, you could very closely resemble the form of lycanthropy your bloodline comes from. Or you could barely tell. You could only have, you know, large amounts of facial hair, slightly sharper canines, slightly sharper claws, and a tail you could hide if you wanted to. You could pass for a human or whatever. No, I could see them being accepted more in Rome. Right, yeah. Most shifters are going to find their home in Drome, the Shadow Marches, Eldine Reaches, Principalities, places that don't necessarily put much weight on where you come from. Now, the elves may also accept them more. There's Yeah, a shifter in Valinar wouldn't be super weird. Um, that'd be more, more of a challenge or a stretch to be accepted by the tribes in Valinar, but it's not unheard of, uh, depending on... You know, you could get pointed ears from your lycanthropy and pass for an elf. Yeah. Or maybe you bring food from other areas to the desert and they just accept you as like a traveling merchant. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of good things you could do with the shifters. Again, a lot like the cool things you could do with a tiefling. Just customizing your appearance to match what you do for a living. You could have... Uh, you could have a variety of a shifter that's from the Lazar Principalities that has a fin and scales or an anglerfish light on their head. Yeah, most definitely. And you, you could you could breathe underwater and you, you could do some really, really interesting things with the shifters. I think mostly in creating a shifter, you want to consider your background very carefully because that will kind of lend itself to your physical characteristics and the unique things you can do. Yes, definitely. Um, but before we get into making a character with this race, it's important to recognize that the book kind of separates the shifter uh, into three unique categories. And these are kind of broken up based on what skill points you're going to receive, uh, what proficiencies, uh, what you're going to be good at. That's typically what these three... Uh, tend to do to the shifter. They break them up into three different categories. Uh, So the first one is the beast hide. So with the beast hide, you can think of a form of lycanthropy that's very intimidating or athletic. So a were-tiger or a werewolf or a werebear. Or a boar. Or a boar, a were-boar. That's something the, the beast hide is typically going to be the bulkiest and the strongest of the shifters. And typically, I would say the hardest to hide because these physical characteristics are going to be very brazen and making you look intimidating and stand out from more mundane looking races. Um, So to kind of get into the specifics of the beast hide, you're going to get that plus two to con, which makes sense if your lycanthropy comes from a bear or a boar, something typically with more vitality. You're going to get those two con points. 
uh, proficiencies, athletics, and then when you're shifted, you gain temporary hit points, again, lending itself to big and bulky. Big and bulky. Next one uh, that they're separated into is the long tooth. Now, this is kind of the fast and slender animals of the world that I would picture. So this would be something like a a were-tiger or a mongoose or a rat. Something more slender and quick that prefers to hit quickly and run as opposed to the beast hides who are going to stand their ground and use that intimidating presence. Now with the long tooth, you're going to get the plus two to strength and you're going to get that proficiency in intimidation. Again, to kind of lend itself to the lifestyle of being a hit and run creature or something that relies much more on your wits and intimidation than your physical prowess. Now, the long tooth, when they are shifted, they get a bonus to their unarmed strike. And it also allows them to use their strength modifier in piercing damage instead of bludgeoning. So that gets us into the fantasy if, let's say, you're a long tooth shifter monk, and typically you would use your dexterity when you're attacking. This gives us the flavor of being a were-rat who prefers to bite his enemies, and you can turn those key bursts, unarmed strikes, into multiple bites that use strength as piercing. Yes, strength-based monk. Yeah, that sounds pretty good, and all with natural weapons. The were-rat would really lend itself to a monk that prefers to only use natural weapons. So the last category of the shifter in Eberron is the swift stride. And this is going to be your very quick animals that don't tend to fight head on. So things like birds, variations of birds, uh, fish, things like that. So the more mundane creatures of the universe that don't typically present themselves as predators, I suppose you could say. So with the swift stride, you get the plus one dex, plus one charisma. Makes sense if your lycanthropy lends yourself to a very beautiful bird or a sleek looking creature of the water you're going to get that charisma you're going to get that dexterity to move quicker and more efficiently and you're going to use your plumage or your looks to gain the upper hand if you're part of the swift stride variation Um, they also gain proficiency in acrobatics makes sense good at moving some of the quicker animals of the multiverse you get plus five to your walk speed movement speed which is great yeah. With the character we we're talking about earlier, a monk, I think that class really lends itself to the stri- to the shifter. Because uh, with a monk, you're looking at 50 base movement right off Easily. the bat. Yeah, depending on level. And also, the swift stride does get another cool ability. Instead of just, just like a straight up D6 to your hit points or to your attacks, they get an, uh, an extra reaction. So... This kind of lends itself to the more prey animals that could be your source of lycanthropy that have to defend themselves quickly and get out. So giving you that extra reaction that does not provoke an attack of opportunity, which is important to realize here, especially if we're talking about the character we'll get into later, the shifter monk we've got cooked up. He can use the dodge reaction and not provoke an attack of opportunity and has 50 base movement. So you're getting around very quickly, and you're basically untouchable. So there's three main variations of the shifter that can be found in the Eberronian book. 
But I think there's another cool one that we kind of found in some supplementary materials. And I think this one actually, in my opinion, is the more interesting one, especially if you choose to base your shifter out of like the Shadow Marches or the Eldian Reach, because you get that kind of druidic, shamanistic feel as a hermit or a tribe. Uh, this one's called the Wild Hunt. So this isn't really like an official shifter variation in the book we're talking about, but you can find these stats. So the Wild Hunt adds two wisdom and then proficiency on survival, which again really lends itself to that druidic or shamanistic existence. Um, these could be lycanthropy variations of your more wise animals that prefer solitary lifestyles like an owl, an owl bear, if we're talking in D&D. Yeah, or other hunting-based animals. Yeah. So another cool ability the Wild Hunt gets that I think is definitely worth mentioning uh, is after your next long rest, you can double your proficiency bonus for any ability check made after that long rest. Now this has to be done against something within 60 feet of you, so you can't just nuke something with a spell with double proficiency. I would say you typically want to use this for some sort of intimidation or like a like a social check, I guess I would say, yes. as opposed to a combat prowess. It also allows you to track the creature that you've marked with this ability. Right. And you, if it's within 60 feet of you, you know exactly where it's at. But you can't switch the target unless that creature dies or you've completed a long rest. Yeah, and so like the final cool thing about the Wild Hunt that I think made it worth mentioning here is that as long as you're shifted, you get advantage on wisdom checks, which again adds to the solitude or regality of your source of lycanthropy. Yes. So again, like we mentioned with our previous races, a lot of them have a place to call home. Some of them don't, and the shifters being counted among those that don't officially have a place to call home, but the largest amounts of shifter populations can be found again in the Eldine Reaches and within the wilds of Drome. There are some that are spread out through Corvair, but those are typically on the eastern parts of Corvair is where you're going to find the majority of shifters, especially after being pushed there by the Inquisition. It is also worth mentioning there's a pocket of Eberron's natural lycanthropes that did survive the Inquisition that I wouldn't that we don't consider shifters. They're lycanthropes. They're different, and those have kind of been relegated to Sarlona again, uh, where the changelings come from. Kind of a refugee city, if you will. That's mostly where the natural lycanthropes that survived the Inquisition had moved. So the shifters and the lycanthropes in Eberron, it's important to keep in mind, have separated themselves societally. So, like all the races we've talked about, dragon marks are important, and while they don't appear typically on shifters, uh, they can. They can. And again, like tieflings, a shifter who exists outside of the Eldian Reaches or Drome could go their whole life without coming across another shifter. Yes. So these two races, specifically the tiefling and the shifter, are relegated to one area in mass and spread out typically on their own, and become rare. Yes, to quote Bilbo Baggins, like butter spread on too much bread. 
Now let's talk about the most important piece of really studying any of the races in Eberron. How are we going to get this into our game? Yes. Now, as we mentioned earlier, uh, we came up with a pretty cool character, in my opinion. Uh, you could take the shifter in all sorts of directions, but I think this race really lends itself to the Monk class very well with the movement and being able to alter the stats in which you use to do physical damage. I think is very cool when incorporated into key bursts and unarmed strikes. If you can use different modifiers for those things, it could potentially make it very powerful if you could rely on strength instead of dex, or vice versa, depending on if you choose the long strider or whichever variation you're playing. So let's take this shifter monk. Uh, let's call him Riordan. Let's go. Yeah. Good name. Uh, so, Riordan grew up in the Eldine Reaches as part of, let's make the monk not study at your typical monastery. That's boring. Worships nature. Or something. Yeah. So this monk learned his craft among druids. Yeah, but he failed druid school, so he had... <laughs> <laughs> Riordan failed druid school, so he had to start beating some kids up. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's say Riordan, as he grew became disinterested in Druidic teachings. Mm -hmm. And let's say there's a shifter maybe from a nearby tribe or within his own tribe that introduced him to hand-to-hand -hand combat or martial skills. Or maybe he met a tiefling that could fight. Possible, yeah. You could really, whatever you want to do, just figure out how Riordan learns how to fight. That's really all it takes. And that, again, gives your DM some good fodder for the backstory on, you know, leaving this Druidic tribe, or why he left, or maybe he was pushed out. That's a lot of good fodder that your DM can use. So let's say in his studies with this person he met that trained him tirelessly, mastering hand-to-hand -hand combat, developing an intuitive knowledge of the natural world in a different way than his Druidic brothers and sisters. Uh, let's say he draws this natural existence into his fist weaving. Okay. So let's say let's say Riordan uses the druidic teachings that he rejected as a source for his key. Yeah, so he's pulling in the powers of nature and that's where his inner energy comes from. I, sage mode. Right. So a good way to take this character is he comes from the Eldian Reaches, was part of a druidic tribe, left for whatever reason you can come up with give your DM, again, that ammunition to move Riordan's story forward. But really what's up to you is him finding his place in Eberron. So he exists here. He found all these abilities. Now what? I think that's a good that's a good way to go with almost any shifter character. I exist here. I'm good at this. Now what do I do with it? How do I interact with the world with it? Right. And a good thing with the politics... And Eberron, as a, in relation to just the very nature of the shifter, let's say there's a important politician in Ondair that sees the shifter's skills and wants to recruit him for whatever political end. Let's say he's noticed by the blood of Vol and he wants to be recruited as a powerful cultist yeah. to kind of corrupt this druidic teaching and bring it in to the blood of Vol. That's the big question I think you're going to find yourself asking with a 
with a shifter is what now? I, I'm this person, this is my story, this is what I can do. Now, how do I fit this into Eberron? And it could easily be that you're just trying to survive. Yeah. The war's ended, or you're in the middle of the war, depending on how you want to swing the story. You could be a refugee just trying to survive, and you're making ends meet by picking up any odd job you can. Yeah. So the thing to remember about the shifter is no matter what kind of dangers lurk in your game in Aberon, they're well equipped to deal with these things. They're not typically going to be as timid and afraid as a human or as like noble and respectable as an elf or as aloof as a Kalistar. They're kind of equipped to survive in the world and lend themselves to a very raw character, in my opinion. They, they live in reality and they deal with regular problems. That's kind of the beautiful part of a shifter, I think, is they their motivations could just be as simple as I don't want to die. Yeah. I just want to survive. I want to eventually find a home that, to be mine. Or maybe I just want to travel the world. Yeah. And some of those open-ended story hooks can be really good ammunition for your DM to move the story into further reaches of Eberron. If you're just trying to survive or find a home or find something that could direct you to places that your story wouldn't typically take you in Eberron, a lot of the political intrigue could suck in a shifter and they could quickly find themselves being valued by others way more than they would ever have valued themselves. Maybe internally your main goal as a shifter is to become one of the first shifters in politics and bring your people to light in the world. Yeah, maybe maybe you want to get the shifters a seat at Thronehold. There's a lot of good ways you could take it. and So I think that's what makes the shifter so unique, even more so than the Warforged, is they're kind of at odds with society, but they have that will, that autonomy. And they're very versatile as far as a race goes. It allows you to open it up to not just monks, but you could do fighters or rangers or druids. You know, every race has the ability for it, but storyline-wise, not every race fits. Right. So, obviously, that's not every race you can play in Eberron, but it's kind of a group of the more unique ones, the noteworthy ones that are that are only found here, that have their place in what Eberron is at its core. It's a, it's a world where you can find any type of story, from simple political intrigue and assassinations, all the way to sailing the high seas into a demon-infested cove. You can find any type of story in Eberron. And that's what I think makes it such a strong setting and really lends itself to having some of the most unique racial variations. Most definitely. So today we've just touched on a few of these options. And there are more. And supplementary information out there. Some, like, non-officially published Eberron materials. There's a lot more variations on races in Eberron. And there's good reasons for that. Whether it's the Mornland or the Treaty or all sorts of different ecosystems that can be found in Corvair. I think it's important to take this as a starting point on what you can find on paper 
and what you can get actual numbers for. But the sky's the limit in Eberron. You can honestly be almost anything and find a place in the world. We hope you've enjoyed this kind of surface level delve into our opinions on what Eberron races really are. The things they can bring to your game and all of the unique things you can do at the tabletop with them. Yes. If you enjoyed what we have here, join us for our next episode, and please follow us on our social media on Instagram at tftt underscore social. Yeah, you can also find a link to our website uh, in the About Me information on the Instagram, and we'd appreciate you checking that out. There's a lot of good supplementary articles up on there right now that kind of allude to things we'll be discussing on the show and give a lot of in-depth information uh, on how to incorporate these ideas into your games. And if any of you would like to hear a specific topic or discussion, just shoot us a message off the website. Yeah, there's out. a place on the website where you can add your email and be added to the mailing list, and that'll let you send us direct messages through the website. If you have any suggestions on things you want to hear discussed on the tabletop, just let us know. Yes. So, until next time, I'm your host Kyle, and this is my co-host, Ryan. Keep Keep the the adventures adventures going. going!